tap it in. Welcome back, everyone, to the Big Players Only Podcast, a partner of the Listen Frederick Podcast Network. We are the best place to catch up on golf from around the world, including the golf of your favorite big players, Ben, Josh, Tyler, Tully, Colin, and Kenny Oneput. We are back with a holiday surprise, an interview with world-renowned golf coach Sean Foley. We asked Sean to come on the podcast after we had connected with him after this year's Masters, and I tell you, it was well worth the wait. We take a look into Sean's playing and teaching career. We hear Tiger stories. We hear Justin Rose stories. We get his take on Liv and the PGA Tours feud. And stick around for the end in our rapid-fire segment where we ask Sean the ultimate golf question. Check out our last Instagram post for an idea of what it is. Sean, it was an absolute blast talking with you. You aspire us as golfers and people to be the change that we want to see. You're an incredible mentor and person. Thanks again for joining us on this podcast. Make sure to head over to Instagram and follow us at Big Players Only Pod. You can find Sean on Instagram at Sean Foley Performance. Thanks everyone for joining us. And without further ado, Sean Foley. An unsponsored Amstel. <laughs> we also have unsponsored. Yeah, beers. we're going for the Amstel sponsor this coming year. Yeah, <laughs> right. Well, thanks for joining us. Uh, we'll jump into things. First of all, I'm Ben, Tyler, Colin, and Tully. We're the Big Players Only podcast. We started this thing up in February of this year. I think we're all just kind of golf nuts, and we love the game too much. We want to make it a little bit more approachable for everybody, a little more fun, a little less stuffy. Kind of like I think you uh, you have similar sentiments. Yeah, no, of course. Yeah, I'm kind of completely against the other part. I mean, I'm always <laughs> against that, right? So. Yeah. Us and our viewers want to know a little bit more about your backstory. We know you as a coach, right? Tiger's coach, Cam Champ's coach, Lydia's coach. But get us a little bit more into how you picked up golf and then how you wanted to become a teaching professional. Um, yeah, I picked up golf. I tried the team sport thing, and I wasn't a very good team player. And uh, <laughs> my dad, who was a sales guy at DuPont, had kind of taken golf up and used the golf course as a way to, as a conduit to do business. So he took me to the range when I was about 10 and I hit balls and then we went again and then that was pretty much it so uh, next thing i knew i was cleaning clubs in a junior program to you know be merit points towards being able to practice and play nine holes so my dad my dad is glaswegian he's quite cheap so he <laughs> said i said i want to play golf and he said yeah that's cool and next thing i knew i worked at golf courses for the rest of my life um so that's kind of how it started uh and then i think you know my early mentors I didn't know it at the time, but, you know, it's a little bit on the fringe aspect of golf. Not, not a lot of people who play golf know about it, but um, my first coach was Greg McHatton, who was kind of at the top of the hierarchy of the golfing machine. So if you've ever, you know, if you've ever seen that book, not many people have read it and then not many people have, have read it and got through it. It's kind of <laughs> difficult to read. He started me in that. And so looking back on my mentors and my influences, I realized that my dad played, you know, he, he played a real role in that. He, he knew that, um, you know, he knew that the, the golf, well, like the world is full of opinions. And because my dad was a chemist, he was a little bit more into the scientific method uh, with those things. And then we moved from L.A. to uh, Toronto 
And in Toronto, I met Mike Nash, Dave Nash, and Gordy Burns, uh, who were like the top junior golfers in Ontario at that time. So that's the first time I'd ever been around kids who were really incredibly good. So uh, I kind of just chummed on with them and just got way better in one summer, just being with better players, right? Um, didn't really have any mentorship. That was only one year I moved back to Toronto. Then we moved to Vancouver. Uh, and in Vancouver, um, I got a, a junior membership at Shaughnessy Golf and Country Club, which is one of the great golf courses in Canada. And the deal with my dad was I had to take the bus from North Van to uh, Shaughnessy. So it's probably a 20-minute drive, but about a two-hour bus ride. <laughs> Brutal. Oh, Picture me with my with my foot joy classics with the <laughs> not fitting in on the bus on 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 the bus uh that was that was when i you know when i had the walkman remember we used the, the oh, disc wow. walkman. oh yeah oh yeah i think my dad um, still every uses time <laughs> and so i had about two summers on the bus listening to bob marley uh led zeppelin and pink floyd so that 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 was another education <laughs> and the funny thing it was like 20 minutes from my house to the place and my dad worked close to the place and i'm still on that bus uh but i, I think that you know, that was important to him because, you know, as it is, like I have kids and they were so into football and then not and so into this and so into that. And every time they get so into something, it costs you money. So my dad was <laughs> like, you're not getting so into anything uh, until you earn it. You so get one time. I didn't like them, but I really I think that's the problem with today. Right. It's like parents aren't being parents enough in, in the sense that like my dad wasn't my friend at all. He was like my, he, he, he was the person who was teaching me how to live life. And so that caused a lot of friction, obviously, because, and I think sometimes it's, it's becoming almost too easy uh, for kids. And I think if we don't learn how to do hard, then we're going to really struggle in this, in this world, you know? So oh, yeah. anyways, that's a tangent. You'll notice I'll have a <laughs> And and so Jack McLaughlin was the head pro at Shaughnessy and Jack McLaughlin was like one of Canada's, uh, most loved and famed golf professionals. You know, he he had a great pro shop. He coached at a high level, junior programs. He kind of was the total package, right? Like I'm a specialist. He was a total package. So he coached a bunch of really good players. And I used to just sit on a wire basket and watch him teach. And the thing that was different, you know, Jack would like get you to take your shoes off and hit balls and bare feet and focus on rhythm and balance. So that was very different from yeah, what I'd come love from. that. Right. Oh, yeah. Well, they're both you know, they're both music is mathematics, but when it's being played nicely, it doesn't feel like I love that. Right. Love that. So I did that. And then we moved back to Toronto. I'm not sure if he was always getting promoted or demoted. I've never figured it out. <laughs> so from the West to the East on the East coast was a professional golfer, a professional named Ben Kern. And Ben Kern was kind of Jack's equivalency, but on the East coast. And Ben was the first Canadian to be first team, all American, um, mate played, was sponsored on the PGA tour by Lee Trevino played for eight years, became best friends with George Knudsen and then went in search of the perfect swing, uh, lost his game, uh, to the level he could play at, but he became the director of golf at the national, uh, uh, country, uh, golf and country club in Woodbridge and the national national golf club, sorry, in a country club, uh, <laughs> is probably the hardest course in Canada. So, once again, at the Nationals, where like all the good players on the East Coast played. So my whole life, I was just always around that high level. And then I was around, you know, incredible men. And they kind of, I looked at what they did and I looked at what everyone in my neighborhood did. And I was like, I want to do what they do because 
this seems really cool, right? To get paid to do something that uh, that you enjoy and and love. And that's kind of that's kind of how I got into. And then I was very inquisitive about the golf swing. So I remember being about 16 and uh, going into Ben's office and I asked him a question and he was like, I can't answer your questions anymore. Along the way, I kept, you know, reaching out and trying to understand more and more and more. And I don't think much of it's very useful, uh, but I was just, you know, I was I was curious. And then I think that then I started just teaching golf like purely to make a living. Um I was kind of a disaster in university, um, came out, probably didn't have any opportunities, but I knew this golf swing thing and I enjoyed it. So I started coaching for John Jacobs Golf Schools in Nashville for like $25 a day, uh, waited tables on top of that to take care of my income. Then I moved to Florida with them, taught a couple of schools in Arizona, back to Florida, back to Nashville. And then I lost my visa uh, to be in the States because I'm Canadian. Uh, went home and, you know, started coaching golf at Glen Abbey, which is where the is the home of the Canadian Open for many, many years in Canada, which is the greatest place to be. Just kind of started on the bottom of the totem pole and was very ambitious and hungry. Um, well, we, we you when you say ambitious and hungry, it's also a synonym for insecure. So I was <laughs> insecure enough to like, you know, think noted for my next be, job interview. <laughs> yes. To think that money and 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 uh, and and uh, notoriety was uh, was a useful thing. Once you get it, you go, oh shit, this is not actually what I was after. <laughs> so, you know, I'm not good at making things short, but that's about the shortest that I can I can put it. So it started as basic survival as far as the job, and then I realized I was really good at it and I enjoyed it. Um, I like being with people and communicating with people, and I like to see people do you know do well. I think that's the difference between you know, top coaches and top athletes, top coaches are very loyal to a fault and, and top athletes can be almost disloyal to a fault. And they want to see results, right? Yeah. It's an interesting, you know, dichotomy of, of energies, but you know, you got to keep the main thing about the main thing. My job is to coach people, but my main job is to not, you know, is to not fuck them up. (laughs) Yeah, from 25 bucks a day to where you are now, was there a student that was like your first breakthrough student? Uh, yeah, yeah. I mean, I think you have different levels of breakthroughs, right? Like all, all of all those little breakthroughs, they all just kind of create like a level of competency where you, you know you can do it. And so I had junior golfers and all that. But as far as PGA Tour players, it was uh, Stephen Ames. Nice. And Stephen Ames won the 2006 uh, Players' Championship. Uh, in incredible fashion. Some people believe it's the greatest final round to to this day with the conditions. And he shot 67. I think the field average was 77. And then he called me, would have been what, like six months later. And he had had some back issues. And in Toronto, to make extra money on the weekends, um, I teamed up with a chiropractor who moved down here with me in 2006 uh, to work with my, well, not my, I didn't have any players, but this was our idea was to, work together as a team to support PGA tour players. Um, and Craig had met Steven and, uh, that's how we, that's how we got connected. He flew down to see me and then, and then, and then we started. And from Steven came Sean O'Hare from Sean O'Hare came Hunter Mahan kind of from the success that Sean and Hunter had had came Justin Rose. Uh, and then I would say the success that those three boys had, um, is when, uh, uh, Tiger called. Awesome. Love that pedigree. Yeah. <laughs> That's quite the uh, yeah, you know, I look, it, resume. It's still, I, I, I look to this day and it's like, you know, you, you have to work really hard 
and you have to study and you have to almost be obsessed by it as long as it doesn't affect your personal life. So people talk about, you know, having balance. There's no way to have balance. Like that's not a real thing. Like it, to me, it's how present you can be within the imbalance. That's more realistic of the chaos of the whole thing. Right. So if you want to be great at something, you got to be pretty selfish. So when you try to have, when you try to have balance, it's like, if I'm not with my family, that's something I'm focused on the whole day. And so you just learn how to bounce in and bounce out. But, you know, if, if you want to really push your limits, there can't be a 50-50 scenario, you know. And we see that, I think, at the highest levels is, you know, I think success comes down to a couple things that, that we can do, which is, you know, it's curiosity and then it's sacrifice, you know, because it's the climb. The climb is difficult and you know, it's important that you love what you do and you find a lot of meaning in it because I think if you don't, you just quit because it's so hard. So, you, you know, having having those as kind of the foundation, it doesn't really do much to a good day, but I think it makes the bad days sufferable. And that's kind of, right. you know, that's really what it feels like. I mean, half the time, if you ask any of my my buddies who coach on tour, uh, we feel like we're screwing up at least 50% of the time. And I think <laughs> if you don't, then you probably, you probably lose your edge, you know? Now, with all that balance, you, know, you, you mentioned you, your family, you have all the, all the different you know, professional golfers you're working with. You know, what does that equate for you and your golf game, you being able to get out on the course and working on your own game? No, I, I'm, I've been, I live in Florida, so obviously like our COVID rules were slightly different than the rest <laughs> of the whole planet. Um, I, I was about a – during the quarantine, I was about a three-a-day player. I was the only one who touched the flag. We weren't supposed to touch the flag. It had the thing. And, and I the told noodle. him, this flag is, this, these flags are the safest thing in all of Florida because no one's touched them in over two weeks. Um, <laughs> but yeah, that was, that was kind of it. I, I think, like, look, golf takes a long time. And uh, my brain remembers how to swing, but I don't think my body bends and moves like it used to when I swung <laughs> like that. So it normally ends up in some swelling somewhere. Uh, I can relate. Back in your heyday, where were you as uh, in relation to handicap? Uh, the best I ever was was probably my first couple of years working as a teaching pro. I would imagine we didn't really put our scores in, but that's probably around a plus one. I could shoot 72 like all the time. So never, never was really a great player, but never can't say that I was really driven um, uh, to do that. I liked being on the range. I couldn't really – I wasn't very fond of putting um, – at all <laughs> we share that sentiment and that's why we haven't gotten better yeah right yeah yeah it's funny you talk to luke donald about putting you're like hmm, makes sense <laughs> talk, to, talk to steve stricker about putting it's like hmm, makes sense talk to Brem, brett rumford or patrick reed about bunker play you're like makes sense and you realize that the guys who are goaded at those things they love it yeah and and so i think what made tiger so special is that he was in the top five in every single category um that's, you know, for, for that year 2000, he was in the top two of every category. I mean, to be, to be able to have all those different uh, skill sets is just incredible, right? And, and you're not born with that. You just ha you really have to earn and work at that. And so when you see his daily schedules from like 97 to yeah. 2001, it's amazing how quickly we are to write off like, man, how talented he is. But I think if anyone was that talented, I'm not sure if they'd have to do it that much. I mean, I think he's talked about how he thinks like John Daly and Phil Mickelson had more raw talent than him. He just outworked them. And it's it's clear. Not much balance in Tiger's schedule from those years. <laughs> You're right. No, it's just, but that's just the, I don't think if any of us could ever understand why it's that important. Yeah. 
you know, it's just that it's a, it's like Kobe. It's a different Annika. It's a different thing. Like Annika now she's quite friendly and social, but back in the day, she didn't say hello to anybody because she, she wanted to be right here and be in this tunnel of focus. Um, and wasn't overly concerned how people labeled that, you know, I mean, the thing is, it's like, we hear in sports a lot, like that guy's too nice to win. And so you'll hear things like, you know, that guy needs a little more dick in him or things like that. <laughs> right. and, and, and I've always wondered how being more of that's going to make me better at what I do. I don't really think it is. I just think it's the perception that the greats are so focused that they appear to be that way. But really the person with the problem is the person who's labeling their behavior. They're just locked in, you know, like I, I can't go up to chief justice Roberts during a Supreme court thing and say, Hey, can I get a selfie? You <laughs> could try. So yeah, I, yeah, I, I, I could try. There might be a couple golfers in there. He, you know, he might be like, Oh man, he can fix my slice. Right. It's unbelievable. It's unbelievable. The people that I've met, because I, I have a pretty good idea of how to make the ball go less offline. It's astounding because you know what? You can be a CEO, you can be a prime minister, you can be a vice president. If you have a slice, you just, you want to hit it straight. So <laughs> golf is- You're speaking right to my been, soul uh, there. <laughs> golf has been fantastic, has uh, been fantastic to me, but you know, you got to go through it to, to get to it. Now you mentioned like the aspect of how, you know, Annika, you know, was very tunnel vision. And I think Tiger also has that kind of reputation for a long time, it was, you know, you didn't see him smile on the course, he didn't joke with the media, but we've kind of seen that change now, even though he's still definitely out there playing and stuff. Was it always like that, even like behind closed doors when you guys were just together? Or was he more of the guy we see now when he's in interviews and stuff? No, he he's a, yeah, Tiger's a human being, right? He's a, you know, he's a thoughtful guy. He's a kind guy. And I just don't think that people... The problem is, is like what we are saying about that person is really our own issue. It's not really that person's issue. It's it's really our own issue. So when they go, yeah, you know, we like how Tiger's, you know, warmed up now and he's giving us more. Well, it's not even about him. It's just about how that's making them feel, which is connected to what yeah. they think about. So yeah. it's it's like, you know, it's it's kind of arrogant in ways. But yeah, I mean, it's a crazy life. Like it would be, he'd be right up there with Michael Jackson and Prince over a decade of the most famous person in the world. So, oh, without I mean, there's so many people who probably never even picked up a golf club who knew exactly who Tiger Woods was. So I know to a lot of people, you know, this young generation who, you know, are on social media and they're trying to be successful by being completely mediocre. They <laughs> think like, that's what I want, but they don't really realize that when you get there, it's kind of like, it's not very normal situation for human beings to be in. You know, we're pretty tribal. We're pretty social. Just genetically, we are. Uh, so, you know, that kind of wall that they need to put up around themselves, you know, it doesn't let people in, but it doesn't let them out. So it's I think it's kind of a it's a it's a tricky thing. And I'm sure most of the goats wouldn't have it any other way because it really mattered to them that their purpose was about being the best at, at what they did. So they were willing to sacrifice other stuff. I mean, you look at these young players uh, like Lydia Ko, I mean, it's not a normal life. Right. And so the fact is we, as human beings, we've kind of been conditioned in evolution. You know, we evolve at four and at six and at eight and at 10. And a lot of those interactions become very important in how the brain forms. And so, yeah, you can expect someone like that to not be, to not see it like everybody else does because they're just, they're just not everybody else. I mean, they're ordinary people who decided to be extraordinary. You, you mentioned how, yeah, Tiger being 
as elite as he was and how important he was, there's a new book that just came out from a, a CBS golf analyst, Kyle Porter, and his his note in there is that it, there's not another superstar in the world where there are more grainy pictures of someone on the internet other than Tiger because everyone wanted to take a picture of Tiger. It's pretty funny. Yeah, no, it, you know what? A thing about Tiger was so fascinating was one time, and I, I just started working with, well, did not started working with him, but it had been a few months, and we were at the match play in Tucson. Remember when it used to be at, at Dove Mountain? Right. And I had like O'Hare, Tiger, Rosie, and Hunter there. And there was a place called the West Lake Trail, and it was kind of a hotel, but in the middle of the desert. So it was a really cool place. And they had a, they had a great like restaurant and bar. And so I was up there one night, and I was having uh, dinner with one of my friends who was a caddy. And there was this there was this lady probably in her mid fifties um, sitting there, and she kept looking in my direction. And you started to get kind of radar, like when you knew, like, okay, this is a Tiger fan or something. <laughs> and so she was she came up and said hello and introduced herself and said, "Are you?" And I said, "I am." And she was a dentist, and I was like, "So you play golf?" She's like, "No, I don't play golf." And I was like, "What do you mean you don't play golf?" She's like, I don't play golf, but because my kids are now grown up and have their own families on my off weeks, I go to the tournaments that Tiger plays in and I'm confused. Right. I'm like, I don't, I don't, I don't understand. You don't play golf, but you come to see Tiger. And she goes, yeah, it's not about golf for me. It's like being able to watch Muhammad Ali. That's so true. Wow. That's like, it's like pretty dope. Right. Yeah. I, was, I remember it like hit me like a sonic boom. I was like, Whoa, that is. So she has eight weeks off and she goes to where he's going to be. So she's watched him play for like seven or eight years, watched him play every single hole and still hadn't even been to top golf. Yeah. Um, <laughs> that's, you know, like for example, during the world cup of soccer, not a huge soccer guy. I think the game is beautiful. It's, I think it's amazing. Um, the game is open to everyone to play cause you just need a ball. Mm. Um, but I haven't, I've recorded every single Messi match because when you watch him, you just know it's different. So true. Like the rest of them are amazing too, but there's just something that stands out like about the guy. So I can't even really tell you what he's doing, but I mean, I'm sitting on the edge of my seat and it's, I'm not even a fan of that. So that, that I'll never forget that. That was, that was like one of the things that stood out about like, wow, this is, this is huge. And you're talking about like the match play tournament and Tiger and this lady. You mentioned how you're at one tournament. And you've got four, I think you listed off different players that are going at once. Like how how is it managing that? At we'll, we'll say you're at you know the Masters and Tiger Woods and Justin Rose are very legitimately looking to to win this tournament, and they're both sitting there on the on the you know, at, the, at the practice range. Like how is that managing it for you or just like coaches in general? It's just like it's like chaos. It's, there's no. <laughs> there's no there's there's no way you're not getting you're not getting four alphas together and you know, like it's uh, um not even alphas like silverbacks I'm, I'm not sure right. if i really i i don't i think the canine theory of human beings is quite invalid so saying alpha is not it but definitely silverback 100 percent, right i mean you know, it's like looking at young young boys playing, and it's like they're just hairless chips. Like they look exactly <laughs> like a chip. Man. Um, yeah, there's a, there's a lot of weird things that have happened, and uh, I mean, I wouldn't share any of it. But you know, it's. I mean, look at the end of the day, you charge them five percent of what they earn on the golf course. So you're five percent of their success, and you're five percent of their of their non-success. And so I think that you kind of see yourself more as a consultant. And, and you're going to naturally have favorites 
and it's it's just complex but it like you made your own bed so you got to deal with it right you kept you kept saying yes right. to these people um but basically what you do is you can do it as long as you're on the range at six and you leave the golf course at nine at night and you can, <laughs> that, that that's how i did it they all learned to fit into a cut and so tiger was like you know tiger was up we we hit so many balls in the dark we played the first hole in the dark probably 50 times wow um so they all kind of had their ah okay five thirty till eight and then and then and then I'm watching the sun go down on the other side. It came up. I had to change where I put my sunblock. <laughs> right. Um, but yeah, put it like this. Now at forty eight, and and what I did from thirty two till forty four, I don't think I could physically actually do that anymore. Yeah, it's that, like- that was a, that was a young man's thing. That was like. <laughs> I mean, I'd lose like 20 pounds a summer, just get, because the one thing that's important as a coach, the range is one thing, right? But if you really want to, if you really want to be able to understand your players, you got to watch them play golf. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, I literally felt like we're just hiking all day. <laughs> it's um, time consuming. So, it, yeah. Yeah. But it's cool. I mean, I mean, I'm watching the best players in the world play the best golf courses. It's please don't have any sympathy. Um, but it, it, uh, it's, it's not for everybody. There's certainly worse problems to have than having to go watch Tiger Woods and Justin Rose play Augusta National at the same time. You know, that's... Yeah, uh, well, you know, Warren Buffett has money problems. They're not the same as a single mother, but it doesn't mean that he doesn't have problems. So <laughs> the, the, key to, the, the key to life is not not having problems. It's just having better problems. Like, you're always, you're, I, I think problems are fine because, you know, that's where you build self-esteem. You can't really read about self-esteem in chapter three. You have to kind of earn it. And so I think that comes from accomplishing things and 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 getting through, you know, the challenges of, of this uh, difficult existence. Great existence, but difficult. Sean, all that time you spent on the range, uh, pre-round, post-round, uh, is there is there a pre-round routine that really stands out to you, either your person that you were coaching or otherwise as I don't know, maybe it was a little different from everybody else or maybe they worked harder than everybody else. I'd just be interested in hear about uh, different stories or different pre-round routines, all those all those different golfers out there. Yeah, I mean, everyone is different, right? Like, you know, you've got some guys who are a little more anal retentive. So they, you know, they're they're they've got they're there two hours and 30 minutes before and they're in the gym for this amount and this amount and this amount. It it's not whether or not things work. I just think it's whether or not we think they work. Um, I don't think if you measured it, I mean, how many times was a guy, you know, late because of traffic and couldn't go through his routine and still shot 67. Right. So I think routines are, I think training is important, but I think routines are a little bit um, overemphasized. I think that, you know, in survival of the fittest, the species that survives at the highest level is the best to adapting to change. And so adaptation is probably almost more important than preparation because, you know, if I work on preparation so much that by the time I have to adapt, I'm too tired, then I can't. So it's, it's, it's a, it's a, it's a tricky thing. It's like, okay, you're at the tournament. You've just had two weeks off and you're taking Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday to try and figure it out. Like you should already know um, where you're at. So I think what Tiger did very well in Annika um, and Justin Rose and a lot of those players is they looked at the time they had in between tournaments and that's when you did, that's when you did the work. I mean, that was the benefit for right. me and Lydia and, and Ben on is that, you know, they only live 35 minutes away from me. 
So Lydia and I, if Lydia lived in California and I was to coach her, you know, on the road at tournaments, we would have never got to the point that we, we got to, because obviously, you know, the whole goal in a relationship is to be able to communicate in an honest way. And I think the more time you spend with, with, with someone, the, the real parts of them start to come out sooner. Cause you know, there's so many relationships that are just in a honeymoon, like, you know, like me and my buddies at the club, they're good guys. If I had to see them every single night for the next two months, there's probably less of us hanging out together. But if you see them once a week for 45 minutes, everyone's an awesome person, right? Like we're <laughs> able to do that. And, and <laughs> so I think that, you know, there's, there's nothing that can get in the way of time because I, I think, you know, you know, what's wrong for a player, you know what you don't want them to do, but you can't always put your finger on what you want them to do. So I think that the more time you spend together and stay open and stay present, you have that session on like a Wednesday night and something clicks and then you're off, but you can't really put your finger on when that's going to happen. So it's just kind of creating good practices. People say it all the time, but the fundamentals and if someone's swinging the golf club, well, and then all of a sudden they're not swinging it well, two weeks later, you could normally find it in like slight alterations to grip and ball position and alignment. And so here's this incredible species that's able to create intention and do what they need to do to get the ball to go where they go. But as soon as certain things change too much, it affects the geometry and impact too much. And then the ball uh, isn't going the way that they, they, they need to go. So it doesn't matter if you're the greatest surgeon in the history of Harvard medical school, um, if your scalpel is not sanitized, people are going to get infections. So it's, it's the, the scalpel being sanitized is the most important part of the surgery. So it's like, you know what I mean? It's, you, you have to pay attention to those, uh, what seem like small details, but, but they're just massive, you know, they're just massive. You know, you've often heard coaching professionals and players alike talk about how golf is like, it's an imperfect game. It's about managing your misses as a golfing coach. You're really looking for perfection in the swing, but ultimately the result is that you're probably going to go a tournament and you're only going to hit what Tiger says, like, you know, two or three shots that are perfect. You're having a great tournament. How do you manage those expectations? Cause it's a game of misses. Yeah. I think they all pretty much, they, they've played golf for a long time. They, they understand it. I think that like, there can't be many wide receivers left in the league that when they get hit hard, they complain about getting hit hard. Right. And so I think as it relates to golf, it's like, if you haven't figured out that golf is not fair, and unjust and as Palmer said deceptively simple and endlessly complicated then you're in the wrong sport <laughs> you're just not accepting what you are doing I mean how many how many tournaments were lost you know in the last two years by someone hitting a great iron shot and they hit it at 5 p.m at one minute and 22 seconds and then it one minute and 23 seconds, the gust went from 12 to 25 uh -huh. and the ball slowed down and plugged in the front bunker and they made double. And then everyone's going, you know, they didn't have, you know, they couldn't close because mentally they're not, I don't buy that. There's, there's, you know, shit happens like to good people. And I think that, that I see plenty of rounds where my guys hit a ball and if they hit it five seconds later, it would have went 30 yards shorter. So there's all, it's just like life, right? There's so many there's so many variables that go into you having a successful, a successful day, right? You might have a, you might have the most uh, amazing plan to speak to this client. And then guess what storm hits over Jersey and you can't fly there. Like there's so much. That's why I think golf's the ultimate microcosm um, of, of life is 
I think it parallels it perfectly because all you can do is what you have control over. And after that, if, if you, you know, if you suffice that you have no control, then you better have full acceptance and be able to move from moment to moment. Right. Yeah. I love that. I think one of the biggest step for me in my maturation in golf was like, you just go up there, you do everything you can, you've practiced and you hit the shot you hit. And if it doesn't end up where you wanted it to, there's a million different reasons why you just got to accept that you did everything to make it good. I mean, what else can you do? Right. Like, what, what else can you do? World-class surgeons have surgeries that have like a 20% success ratio, but they still take it on. Right. Um, you know, it's, what is it that you can do? You can train in a better way. Um, you can become clear with your technique. Uh, you can practice in a way that's probably a little more consistent with how the game is played. And then what can you do? You know, I mean, look, if you made a 30 footer, then I promise you that thing hit about four things that you did. <laughs> <laughs> It's all skill. (laughs) Yeah. Stop taking away my best memories on a golf course. (laughs) (laughs) So when you start working with a new player, how long do you spend with them until you think you're comfortable making swing changes? I don't think it's about swing changes because basically that movement is a motor program. So you can't change motor programs, right? I mean, you're dealing with neurons and neuropathways and it's the nervous system. And so, you know, say you've got someone who's come to you and they're taking it way inside. And then you say to them, you know, you're taking it way inside. If you take a little bit more here and they're like, you know what? I've tried to do that for 15 years and I've seen everybody and I can't do it. It's like, all right, well, you know, duct tape can do some pretty amazing things. (laughs) So it's like, all right, well, okay. Is this a tumor? So if this person does this with their swing, does this mean they have no chance? Like there's nothing, if this happens, So then you just say, look, well, you might have been told to do it, but you haven't been forthright enough with doing it. And if you're going to work with me, you're going to have to do it. But there's just a thousand ways to skin a cat. So there's there's other ways to go about doing it. But I think that for the most part, um, I remember I had this personal trainer and uh, I worked with him and I just started to notice like my knees started to get really sore. So I went to a different personal trainer. And then he watched me squat and he was like, no, dude, don't do that. And I'm like, what do you mean? Don't do that. He's like, don't do it that way. And I'm like, well, but I've been taught to do it that way. And he goes, do it this way. And then all of a sudden my knee stopped hurting. So he didn't really teach me anything. He just explained to me that I didn't understand what I was supposed to do. So I think the understanding is very important. Like when people are like, why do I hit it fat? People can come up with a thousand opinions, but you're going to hit it fat for maybe three reasons. Can you, me, can you give me those three reasons? Cause that is a problem <laughs> that I have. Yeah. Right. It's uh, it's called having a life and a family and a job. <laughs> I can't fix those ones. And then, you know, it depends on who the player is. So for example, like when I started with Cameron champ, he's just this raw gifted kid. And I was kind of like, all right, well, I want him to be a better player. So where is he amazing? And where is the low hanging fruit on him shooting better scores? So obviously someone who hits it 350 yards when they're it's 16 years old <laughs> probably isn't going to have the softest touch around the green. Right. Yako, you have someone who was number one in the world at 17 and kind of had a shut club face and her club was across the line and her hips were really fast in the downs in a transition. And so when she comes to you now, she's doing none of that, but she was taught that, that wasn't correct. But it's like, how do you say that to someone who's number one in the world that what they're doing doesn't work? Right. 
but you know that's methodology right like that that's 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 methodology some muslims think that it should just be islam some christians think it should just be christianity that's how people are what if it can be everything what if you what if you can learn from all of it so i think when i started with her it's a combination of looking at technically what's going on but then knowing that that person is just really struggling inside right i mean this thing that came really easy to them is now seemingly impossible and their whole identity and everything is connected to it and so it's a that, that's a heavy task like that's a big responsibility so I, I think that that's why you always have to remember that you know you're working with the human being who probably has the same fears and same doubts and same trauma that you have and, and recognize you know and recognize you know like that guy in the airport who's, who's being a dick to the lady behind the counter empathy who yeah. knows who, who who knows what he who knows what phone call he just had two hours ago from his lawyer or whatever. We just don't know. So I think that, I think you just have to recognize it. I think it's a good place that when you meet people is, you know, just imagine they're probably wounded like you. And if you're kind to them, that's probably going to be helpful to them. And I, I, I think that that's a pretty good way to look at life and relationships because, you know, I think when you're working with players, it's very hard for them to be vulnerable and talk about what they're going through because, you know, we've been machismo to death, right? Don't cry, show no weakness. Like the ages we're at playing sports, getting a concussion, shake it off. Don't be a wuss. You know, it's, right. uh, it's tough to break down gone. those barriers. Yeah. So it's like our, our, our men who appear mentally strong, are they just better at actually coping? Right. And so coping is, that's not necessarily what you're trying to do either. So I think it's, you know, trying to get trying to get to where there's that trust that they know they can tell you anything. Obviously, I've never written a book. You've never heard me say anything about any of my clients anywhere because that's not for anybody else but us. And so when you know what they're going through, then you start to realize like, wow, this isn't necessarily all backswing. This is this other thing that the only thing that's probably going to assist us is just time. And so you just, you just kind of, I basically, I show up and I wait, right? I show up and I wait. I try to stay consistent, try to stay focused on what it is. I'm with that player, what we need to do and just keep them doing it. Even when it's, even when it's not going well, like as long as I see signs in practice and in practice play, I know we just got to keep pushing and keep pushing and keep pushing. So it's kind of like, basically, how do you inspire people to fail better? Right, right. It's a growing process, absolutely. So that, that yeah, sounds like a really like a, a tough thing to be going through, whether from probably your side and the player's side. Like how, how are you guys like measuring success with you know, you have obviously people with completely different expectations from like we'll say a Lydia Co or a Tiger who have you know been top players in the world versus someone you're getting out it's a raw town in Camp Champ. Like how are you kind of measuring that going through those uh, struggles? Well, I think you can measure it. Obviously, there we have strokes gained data and, and, and metrics. But but even that, again, it's like you just you don't know what people are going through. And, and it's not to say that you even have an answer for them. But a lot of times when people actually just get to say what's going on, um, that's probably 85 percent of the cure. Airing the it's grievances. Just, <laughs> yeah. just saying, hey, you know, like it took me forever to realize that when my wife wanted to to unload on me that at the end she did not want advice because she's looking at me me and she's thinking she's like thinking honey you were just a hunter all you did is hunt okay so no woman in the world is interested on your insight on how to do anything right 
That is good. That is good. My wife's right? going to hear that testosterone one testosterone, <laughs> and you can hunt, and that's it. And otherwise, you're not impressive. So good. You know, so you talk about you are, I believe, in my opinion, one of those groundbreaking coaches. You were kind of the new age of coach that wanted to incorporate – you weren't just a swing coach. You were worried about the physiology and the psychology of golf. You know, was that a hard sell? Like when you were embarking on that journey, this was kind of new stuff for tour players, wasn't it? Yeah. I mean, why, you know, why guess when you have tools to measure things, right? It's like, I'm, I'm doing this. Yeah. I, I look, I love golf and everything, but I don't go on the road away from my family for the love of the game. It's there, there's a revenue and there's, there's profit. That's what I'm looking at. So to me, to have these devices, they could tell me exactly what's going on. I wouldn't say they necessarily helped me decide what I wanted to do, but I just think that guessing just left this kind of deep sense of like insecurity and not, and 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 not being sure. And now, now look, all those things you can become too dependent on, right? Right. right. So you know when you're when when you're hurt or whatever, and you take painkillers, they really help you now. If you continue to take them, your body starts to learn, lose its own ability to do what it can do in the first place. So it's, you know, you got to remember most of these tour players, by the time they were measured doing anything, they were already incredibly competent. And so they couldn't really tell you what they were doing, but their subconscious obviously knew what it was doing, right? There's layers to us. And most of the time they just can't put it into words because that's not really what it is to them. So I just think that that, you know, I don't think there's any problem with sitting on the range and hitting balls and, you know, knowing exactly how far each shot's going to go. Why would you not want to do that? And they say, well, you know, in the old school, you know, they could feel it and they knew within a yard how far they were hitting it. Well, you know what? That That's the problem with nostalgia is nostalgia always paints a prettier picture than there was at that current time. Right. <laughs> that's true. Right. Like that's my. Really. Like my prom date is way hotter now. Than <laughs> <laughs> my prom date was my wife, so yeah, she's still really hot. Way, hot. way hotter now. Way hotter now. <laughs> impressive, impressive. So um, yeah, I think you know there was a lot of ridicule that came during that time, and and uh, but I've never really been that concerned about that. It's like I, I could take something personally, but that would there's only probably four people on the planet who could make me take something personally. Everyone else is just really imagining who you are and what you're about right and and it's it's easier to criticize than try and understand you know absolutely so we want to talk a little bit about growing the game from your perspective like what do you think the most important things are about growing the game like do you want your kids to play golf or we have access issues like what are your thoughts about growing the game and making it more accessible for everybody yeah well that's the funny thing is my kids have grown up on the golf course they're 14 and 11 and I think they might have played 18 holes, and I think they've been to the range like four or five times. They're wow. skateboarding, one-wheeling, lacrosse, football, basketball. Everything but uh, golf. <laughs> so, yeah, they have, look, they have the opportunity, right? And that's, you know, that's why the World Cup is so massive, because whether you're the richest or poorest person in the neighborhood, if you have a soccer ball, you can play soccer. <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah, absolutely. Um, and you see it through all the sports now, like, you know, because my kids have played different sports, you know, all these sports comes with these leagues. And I'm like, what am I traveling all around mm -hmm. the southeast of the United States to do this thing? Mm -hmm. um, it was never really like that. You know, it's and I think it's a racket, to be honest with you. Uh, if you look at the sheer numbers of kids who will potentially see their dreams, I think if people knew that they probably might invest less in it. But, yeah, I mean, I think 
you know, I think about what golf's meant to me and, and how much I've learned from it and, you know, just the importance of being outside and getting sunlight and just being in nature. Right. Um, now there's a lot of roundup and pesticides on courses that <laughs> make it like that, but, um, it's, it, it totally beats an office. Oh yeah. You know, and, uh, and it's a challenge and it makes you want to come back, you know, each day, you know, how many people, you know, how many people leave the course going, that's it. I'm done. And they wake up the next day and they're like, today's the day. <laughs> yeah, right? exactly. Every and so time. I, 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 I think you see it, you know, some people like golf and some people just don't like, golf. I know a lot of people just don't like golf. They have the opportunity to play it, but they just don't like it. And, you know, making it the thing about Europe, like Scotland and England, it's like so cheap for kids to play golf. Right. I mean, look at, at times in the last few years, how many English players are in the top 25 in the, in the world? Well, that's because it's, no one is really going to be shunned from being able to play it because it's pretty affordable. Right. And so I think that that's the, that's, that's the difference. It's like, you know, we, we have massive issues in this country with child poverty. So it's like trying to grow the game and get kids to play golf. It's like, how about just getting good food and education to them? So it's kind of a tricky thing, like growing the game. And I don't think it's, I think too often it's like false virtue and it's like a photo op. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I absolutely. definitely get that vibes from some of those things. I mean, look, if you're going to do charity, there doesn't need to be a camera crew there. Right. Like you're not doing it for that. Like because life is inside out, it's like you do things for people, not because it makes you feel good, but because you feel good already and you want to share that. It's it, you don't get something from it. You are. it, And so, you know, you I think you can only grow the game in the way that you can. But that's like I said, the difference with soccer is you just need you don't even need a grass field. I mean, look at half of those guys who grew up playing in Brazil, grew up playing in the favelas in the streets and on the beach and so when they get on a, a nice field with a nice ball and nice shoes it's probably like a piece of cake right <laughs> yeah right um but that you know that's the that's the, the the tricky part about golf in north america is that it's pretty expensive so you know how do you do that it, it i think you have to have a deeper understanding of like what's going on it's like a lot of those kids in those areas they don't have the opportunity to play golf then they have the opportunity for their parent to drive them there so it's I think you you look at who's in front of you and you try to do it on an individual basis where you try to grow it. Ways I've done it is I've had a bunch of kids who are very, very good players and their parents couldn't afford it and I never charged them. And that's what you do. You do what you can. But this this talking point of growing the game, I think it's really difficult to help communities of people that you absolutely don't understand. And your heart may be in it. And I, you know, first T, USGA, PGA of America, PGA Tour, everything is well-meaning but if you don't really understand those communities and and we start to understand each other less as every day goes by as they try to convince us we're divided but we're not divided that's bullshit that's a that's a garbage narrative we're all agreed we're not i don't even think we're actually separate to be honest with you um i've never met any of you before and i feel like we could probably go to jamaica for the weekend and have a great time <laughs> pick a we'll date enough, pick right? a date we'll be there <laughs> you could probably do that with just about anybody right i mean i think everyone to to an extent you know they didn't want to disappoint their dad and they love their mom and they enjoy sunsets and they like vanilla ice cream there's no difference it's just that's all been taught to us so you know until we recognize that then i don't think that it, it it's it's going to grow uh, the the way that that we wanted to, they thought Tiger was going to be the massive change to that, and it just didn't. It 
it, it didn't it didn't do it because it's not that people didn't want to do it. They just can't they can't do it, right? Yeah, there's can't afford it. Barriers. It's not accessible. Right. It, it does feel like the underlying tone to growing the game, which is used a lot, is like there's still just some some capitalistic vibes to it. You're right. It's like why can't we just offer a community golf and food and you know hope that maybe golf becomes their thing or not? It doesn't have to be have such a capitalistic undertone. I agree. No, and it can be you know it can be look you know it, it uh, a lot of times philanthropy comes from a place of guilt so it's like that's not what you want it's right. it's you know you know what I mean so it's it's all but I just think you can do what you can do and and try to you know individually affect everyone that you that that you see but otherwise it's and then the thing is to become good at it, it takes so many repetitions you know to do a clinic for inner city kids is awesome but it's also dangerous because you bring these inner city kids out to this golf course that is like a utopian society. It's like they never right. see anything like it. And then they're there for four hours. And then to an extent, they're probably not going to see it again or be back again. So have you really, you know, I think, yeah, you can help some of them because they saw it. And then all of a sudden something got lit in them. And 20 years later, they had a membership and they're playing golf. But I think it can almost work the opposite way too, because it just seems so unbelievable and so impossible that, you know, what Gandhi say, right? Um, you need to be the change you want to see in the world. So I can sit here and bitch about the world all I want and this and that and all these kids who are poor and the education system, or I can actually become, do something about it. And I think that, you know, that's where a lot of the guilt comes from that false virtue is that you can talk about it at dinner all night about what we could do and what we should do. And then after you pay $500 for your bill, you get in your BMW and drive home and you just <laughs> sounded like you gave a shit. Absolutely. Look, we're all, I'm, I'm, I'm like, dude, add me to the list. We're all, we're, all of us are part of, 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 of the problem. So, you know, I was on the phone yesterday with these guys from Botswana. I saw that. That was pretty cool. That was dope, right? Yeah. And those guys were awesome. They were fantastic guys. And Botswana is a little bit different from the bias that we have of Africa. It's super diamond rich. It's actually a very wealthy country. Um, there isn't much ethnic distress or cultural distress. It's, it's a great place, like a fantastic place, right? Like so much of Africa could be if it wasn't for the greed of, of, of other countries and people. And you know, the one guy is a golf pro uh, to what extent, I don't know what that means. Right. Mm -hmm. um, I was on the range. They given a lesson and there was a young guy coaching up there. He's a great kid, but he's a golf pro. And I listened into his left and lesson. And I was like, either one, you give him another lesson for free or two, you give him a <laughs> that, was, that shit was not what you should be talking about. <laughs> it's, it's your, it's your responsibility to know that. Um, and then a guy who's a father of a kid who's got like a bit of a gift with it. And then the other guy is just, you know, their friend, they all kind of met each other through playing golf and they, you know, they want to build the, uh, they want to build Botswana players. And I was, you know, so I just gave them some insights and the interest was like, yeah, you know, we want to be high performance and be able to do this and this and this. And I'm like, look, just show these kids that they're safe and that they have support and then build an environment that allows them to flourish. I said, you can, you can spend whatever you want to have all these cool things to make you look high performance, but high performance basically happens after someone who's high performance gets coached. Right. Like, right. Like the, the high performance thing with Canadian golf is like, 
yeah, they pick the kids who already are winning every single tournament and say, now this is our high performance team. Right. Right. And, you know, they use a bunch of fancy names and they have PhDs, but, but that kid's on the team because that kid's really good. Right, right, right. So, you know, it's, it's, uh, you know, everything's a business, right? Yeah. In the, the tone of business and then talking about, uh, I think what was ironically mentioned as like their main mission was to grow the game, but we wanted to get your take and talk a little bit about live and PGA. And then if you think there's a future where these two organizations can live harmoniously. Yeah, I mean, I think coexistence is always the most mandatory thing is because, you know, if you can coexist, you don't have conflict. If you can't coexist, then you have conflict and that's going to end in someone winning and someone losing. And so, you know, I get it. Man. Like, you know, I understand you've been the only you've kind of been the only game in town forever. Now someone's come in and confronted you on your own deal. So I, I understand that's natural for human beings to feel slighted or upset by that. There's nothing wrong with that. That 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 I don't think Jay Moynihan or anyone overreacted in, in 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 any type of way. But you know, if you look at our world and you look at Coke and Pepsi, and then you look at you know vitamin water, and then you look at body armor, and then you look at Levi's, and you look at diesel jeans, and the whole world is about competition, right? Right. So it's like everywhere else that we deal with is all competition. Like you drink Pepsi or you drink Coca-Cola. It's probably not because of the taste. It's probably just which commercials you like better when you were 10 as they pumped it into your head. Right. So I think for the PGA tour, because it was like everyone's dream to be on the PGA tour, you know, this shocked this this stunned people in, in a big way. I mean, look at Ronaldo's about to go and play in Saudi Arabia for two hundred million a year. <laughs> I mean how do you say no to that? And then people say, you know, well, you know, the Saudis are this and that, and they killed Jamal Khashoggi. Look, no country in the world, especially rich ones, can ever talk about their own histories. Agreed. Period. So I don't even care about. Don't even go there. That's not even a talking point to me because if we all looked in the if we all looked in the mirror, um, it's not pretty. Yeah, everyone's got some it's skeletons. Not, <laughs> it's not pretty. So it, it's. It, like if you just go in your own closet, the things that you're supporting are crazy and you, it's not malicious. You're not doing it on purpose. We just don't recognize how interconnected all this stuff is. And so, you know, I have a player on live. And so I think, look, the players on live should be happy about their situation. And the players on the PGA tour should be happy about live too, because these purses are about to go up in a way that they wouldn't have been if there was no challenge. Yeah. That competition. John Rahm came out and said something along that nature recently. Like, you know, he's somewhat grateful for it because of how it, uh, elevated. It, it elevated everything really quick. Well, it's just like looking, you know, say that I don't know what the numbers are, but, um, you know, if you look at the U S open or the, the, the PGA championship or the British open or the masters or whatever, but say, take the U S open, for example, they make an incredible profit the week of the U.S. Open. Oh, a lot. And the players don't share any of that revenue. And so I think because it's such a dream for us to be in the U.S. Open, just being there is enough, and that's great, and thank you so much for the opportunity, but hundreds of millions of dollars in profit, and the player gets a house for him and his family and then a house for his buddies, and he misses the cut and loses forty grand for the week. It's like, how come they didn't think before – Wow, we got we have more skin in the game than we recognize here. So if it was a decade ago, what if we boycott these things until they make the purses a metric of what they're earning? But it never happened. Whereas, you know, a bunch of guys on Wall Street are probably looking at pro golf going, why do these guys sell themselves short so much? 
Yeah, right? The other side of the card. <laughs> yeah. The people that know all the dollars that are moving around a little better. You know, I think that that's tricky. And then obviously, you know, the game is, is, is about the stars. And so, you know, the PGA Tour, without a doubt, is winning in the star department by a mile because, you know, DJ and Brooks are number one players who won a bunch of majors. But, you know, they were always kind of the alter ego to the whole thing. Didn't really do interviews, didn't say much. People thought that they were brash and arrogant, um, and they weren't. They're, I love both of those guys. They're honest, and they're, you know, they're not going to waste their time. Whereas you know, so many people are spending time with media coaches and trying to say the right thing. And, and, and so it's Liv doesn't really have any stars. You know, from, from, from that standpoint, they have incredible players. Right. But you, know, you think about, you, know, you think about like a speech. And a, and a you know and a, a a JT and a Tiger Woods and a Rory McIlroy, um, you know the PGA Tour is still going to be a more competitive tour, but it doesn't mean that. I mean, for Henrik Stenson and Lee Westwood, why would they not do that? Oh, without a doubt, right? You know, and I think what Tiger said is correct that the risk that you know these guys are eventually over time if they don't coexist, and I don't know enough about what's going on between the different groups to even make a statement on if they will or not. But I mean, I'm all for coexisting anyways, but sometimes maybe not everyone's in it to be in the hall of fame. Maybe they literally play golf like accountants do accounting, right? Right. To make a living. And they've just given them an opportunity to make a way bigger living. I mean, I don't, I can't imagine many of these young 20 to 25 to early 20, uh, early thirties guys, that they're envisioning being on the senior tour <laughs> to right to no. increase. It's not, the, yeah. it's not, you know, a lot of the senior tour guys had to play the senior tour because the purses weren't that big back then. And now these guys are starting to make, and they've looked to other sports and they've looked and went, wow, you know, this guy's making this much if he wins the championship or finishes dead last. And so how much of the people, you know, how much of the NBA owners making off of Steph Curry? Oh, right. oh, I, right. I, I don't know though. Right. I, I'm not, I'm not sure. So I'm sure Steph's salary is based obviously one on what he's accomplished, which he's, he's a generational, he's amazing. But I'm sure when I found out how much they're making off of Curry jerseys, what he's getting paid is probably bang on. Yep. Agreed. So is it the problem of what the players are making or is it the problem of what the owners are making? Like that's the, so with the tour being nonprofit and how everything's always been kept in and we don't really know. And a lot of people are just speculating. And unfortunately in today's world, um, you know, opinions matter as much as facts and speculation uh, with a spicy headline turns into truth. And true. it's so true. just, it's just tricky, right? Like you don't know what side is up and what side is down. Spot on. I couldn't agree more with that. Yeah. I think that's our sentiment as well. Yeah, it's, so weird, weird world, weird timing for everything. It kind of feels like. Sean, I'm interested. Given uh, your your emphasis on the mental side of the game and and your philosophical approach to coaching, do you take would you take a different approach to um, coaching a live golfer compared to a PGA Tour golfer? No, nope. no. I, it, I mean, it's it's just golf, right? You know, it's like you can look at a Buddhist and a Christian and a Jewish person and a Muslim, and they're all sitting there doing something, and they're all praying. They're doing the same thing, right? Like <laughs> it's it's still the same. It's still the same thing. It's still just, it's still just golf on a hard golf course. Um, no, there's no, there's, there's no, there's no different approach. I think to anything like that, I, I think that if anything, I try to really 
undervalue the the level like majors are so hard to win because we call them majors <laughs> right you know like you grow up and someone's like oh yeah the masters is on that's one of those minors i mean language plays a huge part right i'm gonna start calling birdies bogeys and i'll do way better <laughs> have way more yeah <laughs> yeah well the thing is interesting is like if you take someone who say shoots shoots 100 and par is 72 so they shoot what 28 over par is that 28 yeah yep. 28 over par if that first par five is they realize that their par is actually a six like one would they play the hole differently and two when they make a seven they say they had a bogey instead of a double bogey so the, the problem with the word par is that what that's what pros are tested against not us and so it's amazing when you change when you change language um it can it can definitely have an effect on people so i mean at, at augusta you know at one of the greatest tournaments in the world and you're on that first tee and there's all those people there and it's augusta and you've seen all your heroes hit that shot it's still a pretty big fairway with a three wood right <laughs> but it plays like a par five you're right <laughs> well the funny thing is some days it's like a flip wedge right right when it when it's a little cold and it turns into the wind then it's a real shot but it's still like I just don't think they show up on Tuesday at a, at a, at a corporate outing at a course they've never heard of before that has a tee shot like that. And that they get overly worried about it. It's just, it's, it's still pretty wide, but it's the first hole of the masters. Right. Agreed. I think that you've been dreaming your whole life of being there. And then all of a sudden you're there and your brain, you know, your dreams connect with your reality. And all of a sudden, you know, your nervous system ramps up and your blood starts pumping. And I, I don't think that's a bad thing. I think that's a good thing. I think that, you just have to be there enough times not to change who you are, but learn how to adapt to how your body's reacting. Right. So like, like Tiger was the best at that. He, he didn't, he didn't spend all his time on the course trying to get calm. He just realized when he felt a certain way, an eight iron went as far as a seven iron. And when he felt another way, it went a nine iron went as far as a seven iron. He, he wasn't fighting the nature of the thing. He just was accepting it and then making the best decision he could from how he felt, you know, yeah. like, how, how much energy would it take to try to calm yourself down on the back nine of a major? <laughs> right. Or just take this. Yep. Just hit the nine iron. Right. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I mean, you should just tell yourself, man, I'm tied for the lead with nine holes left to play. I'm just going to keep doing what I've been doing. And if it goes my way, it goes my way. It's like when people say, well, what should he have done on a back nine? I'm like, I don't know. He was tied for the lead after 63 holes. He probably should have just done what he was doing. <laughs> and that's the other thing too. Look, you guys play golf. If you've went 63 holes pretty much unscathed by the game, then there's a chance that you have a you you have you have a couple whiplashes coming to you. Right, and right. Inevitability. The, the fact that they're gonna happen on the, the 69th and 70th hole is gonna make you look like a choker. But when you went bogey bogey on the fourth and fifth hole, it still affected your score as much. It's just no one was paying attention. Do you know what I mean? So yeah. Um yeah, just that it's kind of key. Just not that makes sense though. It's like you know, I, I had a player once and he got off to these bad starts uh, on the front nine and the psychologist or that we had or whatever it was, was saying, you know, we need to talk about these starts. And I'm like, well, I don't see why we need to talk about these starts. Well, you know, he's obviously anxious or he's unprepared. He's not sure. And I'm like, I don't know, man. Like it's the front nine of congressional. It's pretty freaking hard. Right. Bogies are going to uh, happen, right? Yeah. Why, why then versus like the 72nd, right? But these, but these last three bad starts we've had, he won three of those six tournaments, so I'm not bringing it up. 
Yeah, right. It's the result. He just, right did, he just did all the ugly work in the first eight holes. And then after that, based on probability, based on his skill, plus course management, plus making the right decision in the win, you know, he was going to make 15 birdies this week anyways, because he always does. So, you know, that that's kind of, I think sometimes we look too much into this and think like, you know, it's mental, whereas I'm not so sure if I'd rather be competent than confident because I don't know. Sometimes people get confident, make massive mistakes, right? Like you got to be, as long as you're competent, that's really what matters. How you feel is, is really besides the point because some days you feel great. Some days you don't feel great and you don't necessarily know why you feel great. You probably have a good idea why you don't feel great, but (laughs) you know, we, we just human beings go up and down, right? Like if you ask me at 10, how's your day going? I could be, Oh man, it's a disaster. If you ask me at 10 30, I could be like, yeah, having a great day. It just, it, everything is momentary. And I think if, if we can understand as people that life is no more than a trillion moments and we're going to have anxiety and we're going to have depression and it's going to happen on the golf course and it's going to happen in our job. And it's kind of natural to feel both of those things, but it's also natural to get back to not. So, you know, where people start to struggle with kind of brain health and things like that is, you know, they get stuck in yesterday for weeks or they get concerned about tomorrow for weeks. Whereas I think we all go to like, what if this happens or man, I wish that didn't happen. But the the key is to be able to recognize that's natural to do that. But it's also natural to kind of get back to, you know, the default is clarity again. Right. So when people are like, well, I mean, Tiger used to bang clubs on the course. All right. Well, why is that? I can guarantee you when he hit the next shot that that last shot was gone forever. Agree with that. I totally agree with it. Right. There's nothing wrong with being a human being and, 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 and being, and being that way, he slammed his club. Well, that's bad etiquette. It's like, I mean, really bad etiquette though. Like, so it's okay for football players to do it. It's okay for soccer players to do it. It's okay for basketball players to do it, but it's not okay for golfers because we're gentlemen. That's not true. Yep. Everyone loves that mindset. Yeah. It's, it's a roller coaster, pretty, right? You're along for the ride. Yeah. That's part of the narrative. It's a gentleman's game. I mean, dude, I play up here at my course. And <laughs> let me tell you what, on men's night, there's <laughs> not a gentleman around. A lot of beer cans. It ain't really gentleman-like, you know? <laughs> Love that, Sean. Well, this has been really great. We're going to hit you, if you don't mind, with a little rapid-fire segment. We want to get a couple opinions from you. Yeah, we've, sure. got, we've got like 10 questions here for you. Just the, right, whatever comes right to your mind. So just, just getting us started. Uh, favorite tournament? East Lake. Tour championship, love it. All right, how about favorite course? St. Andrews. Oh, yes, that's my guy. Where's the uh, best practice facility on tour? Memorial. Oh, nice, Jack's place. All right, how about a uh, favorite clubhouse? I don't know. Since COVID, we haven't been allowed to get going on. (laughs) (laughs) Got to think back Um, a little bit. Favorite favorite clubhouse, probably Eastlake again. Eastlake's probably the answer for a lot because (laughs) – I was at Eastlake for like basically 14 years in a row. And that means you have like two or three or one player in the tour championship. And so the year has been good. So I think there's some (laughs) nostalgic parts. I mean, a lot of these places are just opulent palaces. So, I mean, they're all, you know, they're, they're all really nice. The Amstel lights go down real smooth at the tour championship. (laughs) Uh, I think that week we go harder. I (laughs) love it. it. How about any uh, favorite up and coming clothing brand? Uh, Nike. Do, you had to say smart, that. smart answer. I said, I said up and coming. Yeah, as I the think big, they've been around for a while. Nike stuff has been looking good, but do you have any of these yeah, like smaller niche brands that you've been seeing that you're that you're liking? 
I'm I'm I am I'm a Nike guy, bud. So that, yeah, obligated. Uh, yeah, I, I, smart, didn't smart. Know, I didn't know there was anything else. I seen those <laughs> I seen those three stripe things, but I thought that was a <laughs> I love it. <laughs> what about the um let's go with like the coolest amateur you've ever coached? Just something that might have stood out about a kid that you found. Probably Carl Juan. Oh, good one. Yeah, yeah. You know, long before Carl became famous for his his uh, Antics, his, uh yeah. eccentric behaviors. <laughs> um I coached, I coached Carl since he was like 15 years old and he was always astonishingly good, like just smashed it. And, and he was, he's, he's pure, but he would sit on the range and just top the ball for 30 minutes and thought it was the funniest thing in the world. It's, it's hilarious. I think where I helped Carl was like, I just, I, I, I just kept telling him, you know, like, you know, Carl's Chinese and I understand that culture and, you know, even though in certain areas, like in Scandinavia, people are able to be eccentric and different in China that's not like highly looked upon by the culture. So it just, I just kept telling him to be himself. And, uh, you know, he'll stand on the range at a PGA tour event and shank 30 shots. (laughs) And, uh, you know, he has this finish on the course that he does the super crazy, but when he does that, if you put a gun to his head, he could not make the ball finish left. So it's like, when he does that, the ball is never, ever, ever going to go left. So it's like, how many guys are more concerned with how they look than how they function? Oh, it's solution based. I love that. Right. And so, yeah, he's, he's, he's insane. Like he's just insane. (laughs) We talked about your handicap earlier, but what about a uh, career low career low golf score? Yes, sir. Uh, I shot a 63 at uh, Millcroft golf and country club. Uh, when I was 19 and then my next best score was in my PAT to join the PG of America. Um, I shot 78 in the first round and 64 in the second round. Oh, oh what, a, yeah, what yeah. a bounce back. You have to shoot even in those. Uh, <laughs> well, the thing is round. I was, that was $25 a day. So if I got my PAT, I was moving up to a whopping 85. I'll tell you what, that one, when, when 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 that when I finished that thing and I got in the I got in the car and drove back down to uh, where we were at in Mark uh, where were we, Grand Palms in Hollywood, Florida. I mean, when that check came in at that eighty five a day, I I didn't know whether to buy Microsoft or. Apple. <laughs> <laughs> All right, what about a uh, favorite club in your bag? Uh, favorite club in my bag, I probably the nine iron. I kind of, I'm pretty good with it. It doesn't really go that far offline, and I, it makes me look uh, like I kind of know what I'm doing a little bit. Like my three <laughs> iron is definitely not my favorite club. <laughs> That's fair. Um, what about a dream student, past, present, or future? I guess I've kind of had them all, to be honest with you. Yeah, I guess the dream student is just someone you know who's open and 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 curious, but also knows themselves and. I don't, I don't know if there's such a thing as a, as a, as a dream student. I would say when I was single, my dream student would probably have been Holly Berry. <laughs> now that you're married, that, your dream students are right here. About winning a green, a green jacket, just to be able to have, you know, a series of 15 lessons with Holly Berry would have been nice. Um, <laughs> I love that. And then last one to end on. Um, this is a big one. This is a big one. So you can take some time to think about it. Uh, Tiger or Jack? Tiger. Yes. Yes, sir. No, I mean, look, even Nicholas has said like a hundred times, Tiger's the best that I've ever seen. Like Nicholas said that. So remember Tiger, when he set out as a kid, he wanted to beat all of Jack records at an age younger than Jack did it. So the U S junior, the U S amateur, the U S open, the masters, the British open that in, in his vision, none of it was about having more majors. Right. 
that wasn't what it was. That was ge- that was generated over time by the press. That wasn't actually Tiger's. So Tiger had broke every single record that Jack had. He beat him. He beat him at a younger age in the junior, in the amateur, in the U.S. Open, and then he set all the scoring records and all. So, but Nicholas has said it many times. He said, "My best golf against Tiger's best golf, and Tiger's the best ever." So when Jack is saying it, I don't even know why there's still an argument. I love but, that. But then it's, it's, it's difficult too, right? Because it's like, you know, it's like Messi over Pele. It's a way different, it's, it's a way different era and it's a way different, different time. You know, Jordan, LeBron, some people are all LeBron. Some people are all Jordan. And then you say, you know, Nicholas Tiger. I mean, how many, how many people did Jack have to beat versus how many people did Tiger have to beat? Do you think looking forward, like that 18 major benchmark is just going to be irrelevant because there's too much talent now? Do you think we'll ever have an 18 major winner again? I don't know because you never probably thought that was going to happen the last time. And then that kid, you know, in the red shirt came along on Sunday, <laughs> like turning it into a rock concert, right? And like walking after putts and pointing to them like, yeah, fuck yeah, you're going in the Yeah, way. baby. Yeah, baby. Like we're, we're getting into some Matrix shit at that point. Yeah, Absolutely. That's some Neo Matrix, you know, Joel Silver producer crazy stuff, right? <laughs> so uh, I wouldn't, I mean, I wouldn't doubt it. Uh, I wouldn't doubt it. Look, still, I mean, at the end of the day, if you can find a way to shoot 68 every day, you'll be that person. So that's either 400 par, 300 par, or 200 par. Is there a, and this is just a follow up question, is there a younger player that you think? portrays the characteristics to make a run at that right now? I mean, there's a lot going into that question, but is there a guy that jumps out to you? Yeah, I mean, I wouldn't be surprised if John Rahm did it. I wouldn't be surprised if Rory did it. I wouldn't be surprised if Justin Thomas did it. I would, You know what I mean? Like, yep, yep. I think Justin Thomas is eighth in the world, and I, I know him very well, and I've watched him play a long time, and I think to myself, how is seven people better than him? Like, yeah. like there's just so many, you know, Morikawa, fantastic, Hovland, this kid, Cameron Young, is a complete stud. Um, obviously, DJ's incredible. Um, and who knows where that's what's going to happen okay. with that. But, right, right. Yeah, I mean, if John Rahm won four majors in a row, that wouldn't surprise me. I mean, Cameron Smith now is an absolute beast and shoots 67 every single day. Um, yeah, whew, I mean, those guys are – and look, the reason that it's probably like that at the top – is because to this day when he walks in and makes fun of them, they're like, oh, my God, he's talking to me. So it's still the Tiger effect. You know, the one thing you mentioned, Cam Smith, and I just thought of this, but it's like he's got a lot of that Tiger vibe to him, just a little bit off with the driver, likes to hit it far. He probably could dial it back a bit and hit it straighter, but it's every part of his, every other part of his game that's just stellar, right? It's a lot of Tiger in that swing. Yeah, and he's just, you know, Cam. remember, Cam finished fourth in the U.S. Open when he was 17. Right. So Cam Hoover's like that whole must look like it's a sewer cap. Um, <laughs> but, you know, Cam's always like I've known him for a longest time. And, you know, a lot of times guys get to that level and they start to lose themselves and he just found himself. Right. Like he just, right. you know, I mean, look like look at him. Right. Like he doesn't he, he Cam's quite happy being Cam. He could care less if you love him or don't like him. And I just think that that's always a powerful place to be when people can't add or take away to you. Um And he's worked really hard. Like, you know, he's in good shape now. And he's just kind of been, you know, look, if Cam Smith wasn't Australian and he was American, people would notice how much better he was way before we noticed. I agree with that. 
you know, that's just kind of, that's how, like Sung JM, like how good is Sung JM? Right. 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 He's, I remember Justin Rose, Rosie never really was that complimentary to anyone he played with. He just never really brought it up much. Like he would respect guys and be like, yeah, man, you know, that's cool. He would respect that. But we played in 2019, we played with Sung JM in the first round of the tour championship. And Rosie hit the first nine greens in regulation. I think his longest putt was like 26 feet. And he putted first nine times in a row. Holy wow. crap. And so he came off He came off the course and he said, man, I don't care what they're saying about this kid and this kid and this kid. That Sungjae kid's the best I've ever seen. And nicknamed him Daniel Dart. <laughs> <laughs> because he just, he did, dude, he doesn't, he aims at the flag on every hole. And he just hits lasers at the flag, almost unlike uh anyone i've seen but you know he's to himself he doesn't speak english very well and he's not going to become a fan favorite i think obviously the president's cup for these korean players like kh and tom kim and and siwoo and that was great for those guys that's so how good always been. It's so like, good it's like when the, they said you know the, the president's cup has brought a different side out of them that's how they always are <laughs> no one pays attention to yeah so true right well, great, Sean. This has been so much fun. Thanks so much for coming on with us. Yeah, we thanks, had a blast. Guys. This is cool. Thank you. No, Thank no you. doubt. I didn't know what I was getting into, and then I saw this uh, Christmas thing. In the background <laughs> and, you can thank my wife for the decorations. So we got a plate of cookies right here in the middle too, and just four golf perks. I'm like, all right. <laughs> Absolutely. No, Doesn't get much better.